What do we mean when we talk about a games master encouraging the emergent story at the table? Is there a difference between improvisation and setting up and planning an entire plot out in advance? How can we deal with both the fear and the freedom of improvisation? If you say the real life fills up your days And you don't have time to play Well, midlife is the best time to start a new role-playing phase And you need a rescue Chase coming at you with a rescue A role-play rescue Chase gonna help my friend Let's sit down to My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello rescuers, welcome back, and I hope that you're well. Thanks for taking the time to come and have a little listen to Roleplay Rescue this weekend. This one's a really special conversation that I had a few weeks ago with a good friend who I've really met very recently through podcasting, and whom... I have really grown attached to listen to his own podcast. Anyway, the two of us have been, shall we say, wrestling with our own GM style for a very long while now. And we decided that we would hop online and have a conversation about, really, the biggest thing we both struggle with, which is the balance between planning and organizing and even plotting an adventure and improvising at the gaming table. This one was recorded in a very open format with no particular agenda other than we wanted to talk about narrative in gaming. And then I really had to hand it over afterwards to the fantastic hands of Frank Turfler for editing, simply because I was going through a bad patch of illness. So I wanted to say a massive thank you once again to Frank Turfler for taking one of my interview episodes and turning it into something that you can actually stand listening to. And other than dropping in a couple of call-ins before we dive into the episode proper, I'm really just going to let this one run. And I hope that you'll find something useful inside. This is Season 5, Episode 18, The Fear and Freedom of Improvisation with Andy Goodman. Let's dive in. Hey, Jay, Jason here, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Really sorry about the background noise in the van on the way home, but I just listened to your latest, uh, I guess your latest Roleplay Rescue episode, 517. Um about story games and and I totally agree with you I it's funny because I recently had a conversation with some other folks who were in a game where they were dissatisfied because they felt the GM was pushing it more towards that story mode trying to tell a story as opposed to letting them act freely you know when I when I come up with scenarios I come up with the idea and, and come up with you know the problem but then however the players go to solve it's where the story you know where the game goes and it's going to evolve from there so i don't have a preset conclusion in mind 
where it's up to the players' decisions on what happens, and I just adapt to that. So, anyhow, take care. Hi, Jay. Goblin Senshman here. I just listened to your latest episode and uh, really reminded me of uh, back in the mid-80s as a group of uh, school kids, we also arranged a 24-hour charity D&D session or a and d session, you know, ostensibly to raise money for charity, but mainly because <laughs> we wanted to play uh, 24 hours of D&D inter- uninterrupted. I think at one point a grown-up did, ter- did turn up to see what we're up to and we had to sort of change our demeanour a little bit to, you know... You know, I, I draw my sword by Jove rather than some of the more fruity language you might have used. But it also reminded me, it made me think about DM prep. I was a DM in that 24-hour session and, and I wasn't remotely intimidated by the idea of preparing 24 hours worth of D&D material. I mean, back then we used to play eight-hour sessions and stuff anyway, so it was only like three times as long as that. So um, anyway, that's sort of changing how people think, I suppose. Anyway, cheers. Hi, Shay. Roy here from Chaos's Limb. Back June 15th of 2019, you mentioned wanting to mix fantasy with World War II. I think that was GM's journal number 17. I wonder if you've heard of the adventure Sacre Bleu. It has some World War I goblins in it in a fantasy setting, so that might be something you'd be interested in checking out. Once again, three fantastic call-ins. Thanks, guys. Really great to hear from you. Uh, Roy, no, I've not heard of Sacre Bleu, um, and I'm pretty much able to go and check it out, and I really. World War One and Goblins sounds great to me. Thank you so much for going back through that back catalogue. It's just so awesome to hear those little bits kind of bubble back up and get talked about, so thank you. And Goblins Hench, I'm so happy that I'm not the only one who was odd enough to con the adults into running a 24-hour role-playing session we had such a blast and i'm glad you did too and yeah i imagine our language had got pretty fruity <laughs> um yes it was an interesting time let's put it that way and um jason thanks so much for calling in it's uh, wonderful to hear you talk about uh, your kind of angle on the emergent game the emergent story and it feeds so well into the interview coming now so Let's get into the action. Thanks, all three, for calling in. You really do make a difference to the podcast. Game on. Rescue! Andy Goodman is the host of Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks, an anchor podcast in which he shares his experiences as a returning role player. Also offers Grizzly Peaks radio actual play episodes in which his group has most recently been playing Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. He's a family man and proud father living in San Francisco, California, where he works in a design company. Welcome to the show and thanks for coming. Thank you so much, Shay. It's a real honour actually to be asked to come on your podcast because as I have told you before, you were the first Anchor podcast I listened to. I was completely unaware of Anchor and I think it was the Grognard Files. I think they mentioned you probably, I, I, I must have listened to that episode sometime last summer on the Grognard Files, and they said, go and listen to Roleplay Rescue by Jay Webster. It's great. And I went and listened to it, and I was hooked. I was actually hooked right from the beginning because I'd, I'd never heard anything like this before on a podcast. I'm a really avid RPG podcast listener, but you were doing something I felt was completely new and different. And 
yeah, I was hooked right from the beginning. And it took me took me a few months to build up the courage to leave a call in. I don't know if you remember, but I left a message for you. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I could just listen to more and more different anchorites, as you as you call yourselves. And then somehow at some point, the idea came into my head. Well, why don't I do one? So here I am. <laughs> You're just embarrassing me now. I have to say, though, being mentioned on the Grognard Files, that was a huge honor for me. So, uh, mm. you know, I mean, come on, those guys are veterans, are they not? Legend. Yeah. Yeah, they're fantastic. I, 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 they're probably one of my favorite podcasts. And they only put one out about once a month or something like that, that pretty infrequently, because they, they spend a lot of time, I think, scripting them and recording them and planning them. They, they approach it in a very, almost like the opposite end of the spectrum to the anchor <laughs> podcast. I try and sit in the middle, Andy. Um, you know, yes. I'm not quite the punk rock off the cuff kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I do script bits. But I do like this kind of freedom to get on the mic, have a chat, or to just throw out there whatever's on my chest, I think. That's kind of the thing I'm doing. Yeah, and and that was what really appealed to me. Um, and I think, which is the appeal of Anchor, is that it can be a very, like a personal diary. And, and you really made it into a personal diary in a very deliberate way, which um, I think is very, it's fascinating because I think it's very brave of you for a start, but it's fascinating because it's giving an insight into people's lives as well as the content and ideas that they're interested in. Yeah, you can't see the faces I'm pulling. <laughs> it's all embarrassment <laughs> and blushing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll stop. I'll stop sm- blowing smoke up your fundament. And <laughs> I'll tell you what the, the the Dungeon Master's Diary or GM's Journal as it began that was Frank Turfler. You know? Oh, um, he's become a very good friend ever since I got podcasting. Really, as well, you know, another anchorite podcaster. Um, not so active these days, but um, you know, just somebody whom yeah, just encouraged all the right things. And if you listened. I'm sure, you know, you told me before you listened to all the episodes, if you listened, you can hear that progression, you know, I think through mm. us evolving into what we are now, which as a community, as much as, as an independent podcaster. Yeah, that's really interesting because from you, I then found Spike Pit, mm-hmm. which I really, I think I've listened to all of his episodes as well. I'm just a completist. It's, it's a terrible habit. So I actually, if I find a new podcast, I actually have to start at the first episode. I think I'm weird that way. And then listen to all of them before I listen to any of the new ones. Yeah. So, so I have to go on this massive binge to try and catch up. But yeah, I found Spike Pit and then, and then Dave Aldridge. I think I like all the Brits. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> I think because I live in in America, I, I love the listening to the British perspective, even though I, I guess it's not necessarily that different from a games kind of hobby perspective, but just, you know, it is different in some ways. I think culturally there are more differences than people like to say. I mean, it's a lot in common. We've been so Americanized over the last 20, 30, 40 years, but I just think there are some subtleties. I mean, I love listening to the American podcast for the same reason. It's just interesting to hear those little differences. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm surrounded by Americans every day, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting because what I found is happening now in the anchor community, which I'm now a part of, is that we've infected the Americans. <laughs> Have you noticed that? It's the British invasion. I, I think someone did an episode the other week, the British invasion. I think it was Joe from uh, yeah, Hindsightless. 
I think it's almost like a 50-50 split in the community. Maybe not, but it's it's kind of interesting. You know, we're small, but we're powerful. <laughs> it's a lot more Brits than I expected coming on. It's great. Yeah. The one I started, it was Spike Pit. And me, I kind of came on. I wasn't aware of those. I mean, I it was Jason Hobbs. Mm. Random breed, actually. And I was at the time listening to the Mega Dungeon as well. Unfortunately, a podcast that just vanished. Oh, yeah. And then Spike Pit and then me. But since, oh, my goodness, how many? I think, I honestly think that's down to you and Colin. I, I mean, you, again, I'm not smoke, blowing smoke. But, um, <laughs> but I think the fact that you were there and it made it, like, okay to have these British voices. Because most podcasts actually are, are American. Or certainly most gaming podcasts out in the wider world the vast majority are it's just it's it's natural you know it's a lot more american gamers so of course it's going to be that way anyway enough cultural uh cultural whatever imperialism (laughs) (laughs) and yeah sitting here as well just after uh, brexit day in the uk oh it does feel odd it has to be said so yes oh well you must watch you must watch from afar but let's not go down that route i know you love to talk well I I do, um, but actually, I'll say one thing about it, and this sounds a bit weird, but being having lived abroad, I've lived in the states for over five years now, and before that, we actually lived in in Spain for five years. So I haven't lived in England since two thousand and nine. Uh-huh. So it's actually been a blessed relief not being there, and and also being a little bit detached from it. I haven't felt the pain quite as much as I as I would have. Mm. Instead, I've got Trump. Oh, can we say that word? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right, moving on. Moving okay. on. Yeah, right, what yeah. did we want yeah. to talk about today? <laughs> now, you and I were, we were, I mean, there's been this podcast exchanger, so we better explain this for the listeners who don't listen to your podcast necessarily and certainly yeah. haven't been kept up with mine. Um, so we've had this little bit of an exchange, right, going, I don't know how much it's been on air. There's been a few call-ins mm. back and forth. Is that fair? A little bit. Yes, and, uh, maybe three or four, yeah. Yeah, and I I think I've been listening to you and you've been listening to me. And there's also been this this thing with, uh, what's his name? Barney. Luke, is it Barney? That's Barney. right. Okay, I'm terrible with names. I'm sorry, Barney. Loco Ludus. Loco Ludus, Barney. Dr. Ludus. Doc, Dr. Ludus. Hi, Barney. So, yeah, there's been this little kind of conversation going on around kind of prep for games and I guess na- what you might call narrativism. Or and what I call, you know, from the eight engagements, MDA theory, game theory, the narrative thing. And you're at one extreme, or at least you seem to be that way, like very driven by narrative mm. kind of things. Mm-hmm. And in the things that you say and the things that you talk about, you know, you, you talk a lot about pace, plot, you talk about story beats, those kinds of terms, which frankly, to me, until, well, I mean, I'm aware of them. But for me, they're not a part of how I game. So I'm at the yes. other extreme, I guess. Narrative for me, if I had the eight engagements on a list, it would be the bottom probably. For me, there are other engagements. And something that I kind of hadn't become very aware of until recently. And it's through listening to you, listening a bit to Barney. And I think actually Ray Otis has probably contributed to this. And I think talking to Frank Turfler has contributed to this conversation that I've been having. But it's about this thing of, how do I bring more narrative appeal and engagement into my game? Now, alongside this is that subject of prep. You and I, we seem to not want to come to the table underprepared. Is that fair? 
that is absolutely fair. I think that's where we are very much in the same kind of zone. Mm-hmm. And my opinion, or at least my how I feel about it, and this isn't my original thought, but when I heard it, I felt absolutely this is correct. I believe it's from the Lazy Dungeon Master originally, mm-hmm. or maybe it's Phil Vecchioni who wrote Never Unprepared, where... He says, or they say, that prep is to make you feel comfortable at the table. That's all it is. So you have to do as much prep as you need to feel comfortable. And I I think that's where I come from. Because if I don't prep, and this is where maybe we diverge a bit or or, or not, um, if I feel like I have to make stuff up at the table, I sometimes feel a bit anxious or I get into a little bit of the mist, the white mist (laughs) comes down and I'm, I'm like, I feel a bit lost, you know? what you mean now for me it's slightly different so i have to come to the table with a secure sense of how i will run the game so i don't Mm. necessarily need to know kind of what's going to happen in that sense at all Mm. i just have to have the setup if you like i would turn the scenario or the situation and i might need to know some of the places that are going to show but not so much necessarily the people that are going to show I've discovered right. this thing recently. I was playing um, a Traveller a couple of weekends ago in the most disastrous module game I've ever run. Um, but the amazing thing was that I kind of had the places prepped, if you like. What I, what mm. I hadn't thought about at all, I never do with the NPCs. And I kind of noticed that what I do is I don't spin those out on the spot quite comfortably. Although I don't see myself as a very good role player in the acting Mm. sense but i spin these characters out and i found myself doing kind of slight voices and accents and weird stuff and the guys were lapping it up you know or at least it seemed to be that came naturally but what threw me was i didn't know what to do in some of the locations in this adventure what was awful was it was just like you so there is a spoiler here if no one has gone and listened to my travel episode I read this module, High and Dry, and it has the characters, and the setup is they have to go and find a spaceship. They're going to get the spaceship that they're going to fly around in for the rest of the campaign, and it's not where they start. And they get put on a transport ship to a world, which then stops off while it refuels, and then goes to a second world where the ship is, and then they have to locate it there. And there's the thing on the ship, and then two locations, and it just has details on the locations. And as far as I can tell, you get on the ship here which in my head is a metaphorical train and you ride to there and basically nothing happens Mm. yeah apart from whatever the players choose to make happen and what was freaking me out was the players were i think were expecting me to provide things to happen and it didn't (laughs) you know (laughs) and i I was in a horrible situation (laughs) of i don't know what to do what do i do here you're both sitting there going, no, after you. No, 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 after you. Yeah. <laughs> no, after yeah, you. absolutely. <laughs> now, normally, if I was running a fantasy game and we're doing, like, you know, they, they're on a journey, I would have at the table a bunch of random tables and I might roll an encounter and something might happen. And that's emerging through the game. It's happening as we're playing. But actually, if I don't have those tools, I'm just hopeless. No, I'd just be sitting there going, well, what do you want to do? And they're going, well... Isn't that something inherently problematic with Traveller right from the beginning? Because, I, I, you know, I'm running a, a, a different one, one of the Mongoose Traveller 2nd Edition. I ran my first proper, real proper session of it last night, so we can talk about that mm-hmm. a bit because it's really 
um, coincidental. We're both running Traveller. But again, going back to those deities, the, the Grognar files, they, they always used to joke about Traveller saying, you know, you get the box and you get the star map and then what do you do? <laughs> you don't, you, what are you meant to do? There's nothing. And I think that's been an inherent problem in Traveller or at least an inherent challenge in Traveller is that it doesn't actually lay out what you're meant to do at all, really. Even some of the adventures are very loose in that way. Well, you know, I talked about game structure. You know, you did the call-in, and I tried to explain it to you. I think the Alexandrian, Justin Alexander, said this. Traveller has a gap in game structure. It doesn't explain them. doesn't explain how to play, mm. what the characters do, and how the players do it. It doesn't explain that at all. It has a load of subsystems that you can string together and do stuff with, but it doesn't have a kind of core yeah. structure in the sense that Call Cthulhu, which you love playing, has the mystery structure. You're yeah. going to look for clues. What else do we do? Don't know what to do. Uh, let's look for clues, right? That's the thing you do. And then the clues lead you to the next place or person or whatever. And then when you get there and you don't know what else to do, you look for clues. If I'm running a dungeon game, they're in a room. What do they do? Well, they search for treasure. That's the fundamental goal. Okay. The default thing in a dungeon is, well, look for treasure. And then if we've run out of things to look at in this room, let's pick an exit and go to the next, you know, and we look for treasure. And that's the structure of the game. And what struck me about Traveller is it doesn't have that, you know, unless the, the adventure kind of builds it in. Um, and so they were, there they were. They were at the spaceport. They get off the ship. There's no inserted narrative drive plot-wise, you know, that I might have expected from a pre-written adventure. And instead, it's like, yeah, they're at a spaceport, and these are the things that are around, and these are the, there's some people there that you might want to go and speak to. They haven't defined those, but you know, it's essentially down to the players. What do you want to do? And there is no default goal, is there? The, you know, what I mean, there's no. What do we do? <laughs> I'll tell you what. The mongoose two starter set is is even worse because it has the starport but it doesn't tell you anything about literally nothing about it no characters no locations it says yeah and if they want to hang out the starport for a few days yeah let them do that (laughs) it's like okay and then what are they meant to do there because it depends on your players so much if they're if they're the sort of players that are happy to just drive the narrative themselves and then we're getting into Mm. this, this, this definition then i think it can work but if they're more like you say more passive not passive but more expecting you to provide the momentum in the game mm. which often it is your job as the gm then they're going to be lost they're going to be okay well should we just wait two days until it's time to do something else or <laughs> i don't know you know and and actually we had that scenario exactly that happened yesterday uh, last night um because right. i actually wanted to protest them a bit test them out a bit say to see whether they were going to do something so i just made up this thing that they were going to go on this overland G- grav carrier journey to the southern continent and i said okay well you've you've been kitted out the patron's given you all this stuff and it's given you the g carrier and then the guy says actually we'd rather you fly at night so there's less chance of any visual contact with enemy forces so come back in six hours (laughs) and then i said to them okay you've got six hours in this crazy starport what do you want to do i said uh nothing we'll just wait six hours (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, right. Uh, And I know them very well. I've been playing with them for a couple of years now, so I should have guessed, but, you know. Mm -hmm. And I had a similar thing, and I kind of, you know, I don't know what it is. I I come from, you know, when I played right back in the 80s, 
there was a there was a changing point, and a lot of people have talked about this changing point. It was the Dragonlance game. When I did run the Dragonlance Chronicles, you know, first couple of about first four modules of that between about I think it came out about eighty six, something like that, eighty five, eighty six, through to about eighty nine. But actually, before that, the way we played was actually there was a if we used a module, there was a kind of a goal set by the module. Maybe I remember playing Keep on the Borderlands. I want to say Keep off it now. Um, <laughs> me too me too <laughs> um good old spencer yeah there was a the trouble with the i don't know what it, i can't remember now the caves of chaos you know there's there's raiders coming out of there there's trouble there there's trouble yeah. at mill kind of problem and you go investigate and you kind of get there and there's a you know different range of caves with different kind of groups there but essentially you fall into the dungeon crawl structure go in kill the monsters find the treasure and there are things that interlink those caves that makes it interesting. But actually, essentially, it's that structure. You know, that's kind of a straightforward game. When we played Star Frontiers, I remember Crash on Volturnus really memorably. And that was basically a survival game, kind of a crash, and we've got to get from A to B. And there were a series of encounters. And along the way, there is a narrative without spoiling it. There's a kind of an alien species that's involved in that adventure. And they're, you know, and you're going to encounter them. And, and as galactic patrol troopers or whatever, you're in a survival game, but there is this narrative that emerges through play. And that's my point. It sort of came out of moving across the wilderness. It was essentially a hex crawl. Those are the things that I was familiar with. Now, when I got into the mid-80s and we played Call of Cthulhu a little, I mean, a little bit, you know, not much. We had the, the mystery thing going on, and I kind of get that. But what I didn't get, and I really didn't understand, and what was jarring when I played Dragonlance was that essentially those things became completely subjugated to a major plot line right no matter what happened certain key events were going to happen at a certain time or when you had to get to a certain place and at that point the next sort of set of events got triggered you know the cut the cut scenes yeah now for me this was utterly alien and then i kind of fell out of the hobby i went to uni and i didn't play for like nine ten years yeah and when i came back this whole narrative thing had happened that I don't get, and mm. I still don't get. I sort of read a lot. And you said, I remember when all this was Fields. Mm. <laughs> you know. Um, and it's weird for me. So now you come, you know, you've come through that hobby in a very different journey, as I understand it. Yeah. And so, yeah, tell us about that. Where have you come from? How have you got here? <laughs> Could I get onto that in a minute? Because I just, I want to pick up a little thread because, and can we get theoretical for a minute? I guess you'll like to be, there. <laughs> you won't object. So can we talk about genre emulation? And can we talk a little bit about GNS theory? (laughs) Okay. So for me, the problem with Traveller is that every game you're trying to, whether you subscribe to this or not, I think there is an element of truth that you're trying to emulate the genre of the game, be it fantasy, horror, detective, gangsters, sci-fi. Now, the problem with sci-fi is, I'm going to make a ridiculous statement, it's not really a genre. It's many, many different <laughs> genres. I saw that coming. Yeah, did you? <laughs> yeah, so, and Traveller is non-genre, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's the third Imperium setting, which you could say is a sort of genre, but the rule book is very blank in a way. It's almost asking you to fill in the gap. So it doesn't give you any... Like at least Star Frontiers mm. was clearly something a bit like Star Trek, wasn't it? Or something like that. Or it had more of a specific sci-fi... Yeah. Whereas Traveller is this very blank science fiction rule set. So it doesn't tell you what genre it is. So it's really hard to know what you're mm. trying to emulate. 
Yeah, I think I just wanted to comment on that because I think when Mark Miller and team created it, I think what they, they were doing is emulating various science fiction novels. But I think that the world, you know, the universe, if you like, or the world of that setting, you know, that would be the genre, if you like, would come from whatever it was you were emulating. And I think over time, like the Third Imperium thing became its own sort of semi subgenre of science fiction gaming which is sort of odd. Mm. It, you know, there's a trading game, there's a military campaign, play spies, you can do any of those kinds of things, but none of them is immediately implied by the game. Does that make sense? I want to also talk at some point about this kind of convergence of prep, high prep, low prep, emergent versus planned, and narrative versus improvisational there's a lot of different things that converge in that and maybe you can divide them all into one camp or the other but i think some of them are a bit kind of mixed up and they're not it's not a neat separation because in my mind i think that the purpose of playing an emergent game at least for me is so that you don't have to do as much work beforehand that seems to be the movement towards that light prep emergent style and I think it very much depends on the system you're playing. When we talked earlier about how much prep we do and what type of prep, if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, a lot of the prep you're doing as a DM is in trying to figure out what could possibly happen in the combats. Yes, you can design your dungeon or your wilderness or your city and write your NPCs. And I ran a, a long D&D campaign that ended last summer. But what I found was I was putting together monsters to be in a particular combat and I would have to do a lot of prep, like really figuring out, okay, mm -hmm. so this monster has this power <laughs> and this spell and this ability. And I'd, I'd have to be thinking in advance because I knew that because I don't, you know, I'm not playing that monster every week. I don't know how it works as a set mm -hmm. of kind of actions and how they would synergize, to use that really awful word. Whereas the players, they knew their characters inside out. They had planned probably weeks in advance this amazing combo of spells and and feats and whatever. And they would just slaughter me. Every, you know, they would just like they would just take my monsters to pieces. Especially if I hadn't done even the minimum amount of prep in actually knowing what each of the powers were. So that's the first step. You have to know what they did. And then you have to do this second level, which is thinking, yeah. okay, so if I put these kind of things together, this could do this. And what? It, but what if they're going to use this type of attack or this type of spell? What would the defense be? That's, and it's a crazy amount of like mental work that you need to do. So that, I think, is very hard to improvise, very hard to do in an emergent way in, in, with these newer systems. Like if you roll a random monster throw it on the table. I think in the older games, you could do that pretty easily. It would still be the same as if you'd kind of planned it. I think with the newer games, you do that, you're probably going to really undersell the mm. monster or the enemy. You won't know it well enough to really run it in a good or interesting or challenging way, perhaps. And I found this happening all the time. I would miss massive things in the monster's makeup that would have made it a much more interesting fight, and I just kind of just missed them completely. So that was where this heavy prep 5e for me had to come from. Yeah. I remember when I was playing 5e, I kind of I started down that road that you're describing and then I kind of gave up on it. 
Um, and what I started to do was go back to the things that I was comfortable with that had kind of come from my early days in gaming. So, for example, I remember very, a very strong memory of, of running a particular scenario. I went to the DMG first edition. There is a starter dungeon in there. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's basically a map. You know, I grabbed that map and I was playing online. So I grabbed that map and I used that as the basis for uh, an adventure. And then we were just going to do a dungeon crawl. And then uh, I pop, yeah, populated that map with, I think, goblins and various other kind of creatures. And then when it came to game night, I essentially just grabbed the stats. And using Fantasy Grounds was fab because all that's already in there. You don't have to look it up. It's there. And I was kind of running the fight. And I kind of gave up on caring about whether the monsters would win. Um, but I felt confident. And I'll tell you why that is. I feel really confident like dealing with that kind of battling situation. In the fight situation with 5e because i have a skirmish gaming background tabletop wargaming is my background and i'm okay with tactically thinking on the fly mm. and kind of oh I, I kind of know how goblins work and i see they have that ability yeah. to evade in the 5e if i remember correctly but i can kind of move up hit you and run away and i was able to use those kind of things quite happily because that fits in with my wargaming background and so I stopped worrying about the fighty stuff and and I kind of got into this comfortable zone, which rapidly became boring because I wasn't doing anything more than presenting a, you know, a place for them to explore some treasures and a few fights. Yeah. This wasn't the game I wanted to run. Hmm. So I ended up not playing 5e anymore. And I think it was really my fault. I don't think it was anything wrong with 5e. I think it was that I just disengaged from that complexity that you described. Yeah, and, and that might be why it got boring, because actually the basic low-level fights are really boring. And if you look at most of the monsters, mm. they try and design them so each one can do something unique or special. But there's a lot of them that don't, and they're just a mm. bag of hit points that you have to, <laughs> you know, you have to hit, uh, that you have to whittle down. And that's, that's really boring. I think it's, it only comes into its, its own when <laughs> special abilities can be kind of applied in a, in a tactically interesting way to present a different challenge. Um, and, and I knew that that's what I had to do. So for me, it was a lot of prep to do that on, on top of everything else. To get back to that original idea of emergent gameplay prep versus narrative, I think one of the hardest things mm. to improvise, and this is probably where we had our biggest difference, one of the hardest things to improvise is that dramatic flow of events in a plot. And I remember your response to me when I left that message, which is mm. you just don't do that in your games or you don't see the need to have those peak moments that kind of rising and falling actions and for you it seemed like those were just emerging at the table as and when and for me I felt like I had to kind of plan yeah. them out a little bit in advance because I wanted certain dramatic events to happen not in that dragon lance way like you say where it's literally scripted like you hit a certain point and then the cutscene happens but I knew I wanted them to happen in some way because they were part of this unfolding narrative I'm curious how you do this in an emergent way right. or, or what is there in its place, I suppose. I don't do anything. <laughs> the secret is of that is, you know, we're playing a game and I think that it has its own sort of rising and falling tension. 
it comes from the interaction we're having around a table and it's very hard to to see it in any other way for me i guess by example is probably the best way of doing this a few weeks ago we played the first couple of sessions of grim's fort um and uh, that this is like a, a small kind of fortified village and essentially i set up a situation there were some zombies yeah, NPCs have been turning into zombies and they're basically stinking up a place. And the, the adventurers kind of pick up a rumor about this and go investigate it. And yeah, they bit they bit it and they went for it and they went in. And I had this situation where there's a you're outside the house and there's a partly a jarred door and there's a funny smell and you can hear some shuffling sounds. And the players cautiously entered that building and they described it. And then and there's this weird situation with the guy sitting on the chair with a big <laughs> dagger sticking out of his neck and another one out of his chest. And he appears to be just sitting there. And then as they come in, he looks up at them, you know, with kind of staring eyes. And, and of course, I'd not set it up as a zombie thing, but they immediately get all of the, the tropes. But what was interesting was the tension at the table. And it's really hard to convey, like even listening to the actual play of that, which was one of the first ones I recorded, the only one I've ever shared, you don't hear it, I don't think, but there's a tension at the table that I experience with the players, you know, and they're like, oh, crap, what are we going to do and how are we going to handle it? And that tension kind of builds, and then they decided to engage in combat. It's very, very brief. It lasted about three or four seconds of t- in game time, maybe five minutes or something of play time, and then it kind of, you know, it's all released. So that build of tension, and there's a big release, and then they're kind of, oh, you know, okay. And then they start investigating finding their clues and yeah next bit. does that does that help i don't know but mm. that's what happens at the table and it happens naturalistically and i just learned to trust it to go with that and if it gets a bit slack i usually roll up something or kind of for a bit of inspiration i'll roll on a random table throw a clue in or just have something turn up take the um the classic lazy dungeon master thing of yeah if all, all else fails some monsters appear. That's like that Raymond Chandler thing. You know, um, if, if you know what's going to happen, just send some guys in with guns, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and also just remembering, if there's a few dramatic principles. Yeah. Like if you've shown the shotgun, it has to get used at some point. Um, it might not be the monster stuff. It might just be that I throw something interesting in there. And I think a lot of the time it's very hard for players to ignore that. And again, just looking for inspiration. Like these guys in that particular situation, there were some glass bottles around the place and they want to know what that was about. And I just made up that there were kind of residue of drugs and something odd going on and decided there and then that that was linked to the zombie. And and on we went. It wasn't something I started with in my head. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, And that, I think, is a very interesting part of emergent gameplay, which is how much control... If you, if you want to use that word, you are giving to your players to shape effectively what, what the story is, in inverted commas. Because um, I, I know you're not really talking about story in a traditional sense, but what, what happens at the table becomes the story. So how, how much you let yeah. them decide that. And that's something that maybe I need to get a bit more comfortable with. Um, I'm a little bit of a control freak, as I think all GMs are to some extent. So it, it's a quite a it's quite disconcerting, or it's a big effort, really a conscious effort to let the players decide what's going to happen in some way. And I think you have to do it in a very judicious manner. But like what you said there, they decided 
did you say they decided that it was drugs that were in the bottles or you kind of, it just happened or? Okay, so let's just try and remember the sequence. So I described there being, mm. I think, eight bottle discarded bottles with some residue in them of some kind. And they decided to pick up on that. And I'd, I'd in my head decided that they were sort of opiates of some kind. I think someone at the table said, oh, I wonder if the zombies anything to do with the chemical or the drug. And I just went, yep, okay, cool. In my head, I went, ping, that makes sense for me. And I'd sort of had this idea that this drugs was coming, being supplied from outside the town by this little goblin group mm-hmm. I knew were up in the, a few hexes Typical away on my map. Typical blood. And so, yeah, that just kind of <laughs> pinged. And then from there, they started to investigate that whole thing. And if you look at my notes, I have like some key NPCs that are around the place. There's a sort of a thieves guild thing operating called the Velvet Hand. And I just, and obviously, that, obviously they were moving the drugs through the town, you know? Mm. But this idea that it was infected in some way came really from the table. And that just spun a whole other series of things. So when I went away to re-prep, I then absorbed that into what was going on. And I decided that, yeah, absolutely. And there's a whole sort of supply chain of that, which I haven't revealed to the player, so I won't talk about. But a whole load of stuff that inspired my prep. So I got inspired by that. And so out of game, I went and did that. And that was exciting and fun. And I got my head around what that means. And we came back to the table, and that hasn't come up again yet. We've missed a lot of sessions. And you know, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like there's a, a fruitful collaboration mm. going on, but I don't know that the players are controlling it. Yes, yes. And I think what happens is I'm deciding what is going to become the truth. Unless, unless the players become so convinced of it that it sort of becomes a default truth. At least in their head. And of course, you know, then philosophically, what is truth, right? So um, they may well believe that is it, and I'm not buying it, but they just act like that's true. And I think I've kind of got used to that. In contrast, because what you were saying, I just want to pick up on something you said a minute ago about the control. There are a lot of games, so I'm thinking like Fate, for example, is probably the game that pings this for me, where the players have like literal tokens Mm. that they can plonk down and say, I'm changing this in the world, or I'm making this happen, or I have this thing. And I don't have that at the table. But what happens is the players make suggestions or say things or ask, they're asking me a question or they're asking each other or they're brooding around stuff. And some things I go with, uh, a lot of things I let wash over me. But actually... I'm happy for them to make the suggestions. Does that make sense? It does. And um, Shay, I'm going to tell you something now that I hope will make you very very proud of me. (laughs) Because over the last few sessions with my Master of Nihilathotep campaign, I've been kind of doing that um, as as an experiment, as a sort of trial for myself to see Mm. how it works. So what's happened is they've left New York. The first main chapter is set in New York, and then they they go on boat by boat to England. So what I thought was, um, rather than just redlining it, okay, six days later, you're in Southampton. I thought, I'll look for a little mini adventure to do on the boat. Mm. And there are plenty of them around. The one I particularly found was set on the Mauritania, the sister ship to the Lusitania that was sunk in World War I. So it's one of the biggest ships of the time. It's very grand. And this the um, scenario on it is actually, it's fantastic. It's like a murder mystery with 
different little elements to it as well. So there's um, all these really bizarre and interesting characters. And it's kind of like an Agatha Christie thing. Mm. So the players have to figure out who the murderer is. Well, that's kind of part of it. Yeah. There's also some cultish stuff going on and some weird shit that goes on. But what it what is brilliant about it, it doesn't actually in the scenario tell you who the murderer is. It's up to you to decide. So what I thought I would do is I would make it a quantum murderer. Yeah. You know the quantum dungeon that everyone talks yeah. about? Which I, I, so, by the way, which I usually hate, but... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but the quantum murderer, because I thought, you know what I'll do? Because I want them to succeed. And the trouble with that kind of locked locked room murder mystery thing is that if you get it wrong, it's a bit of a, you know... Because in the books, they always get it right. But yeah. if the players are doing it, the chances are they won't get it right. So what I thought was, I will not decide who the murderer is. I will let the events and the players... Ultimately, I said, whoever they in the end decide is the murderer, that's going to be the murderer. So <laughs> so, um, so the way it played out was um, several of the suspects actually died during the course of the journey. So they were kind of being whittled down. It's that kind of, you know, um, you know, the Agatha Christie trope of the, all the people dying. But mm. um, um, and, and in the final session uh, of that journey, that segment, there was two possible murderers one was the purser who was this um really nasty kind of guy um and then there was also this russian count right um and they (laughs) this is great so they split up most of them thought it was the purser because he was such an obvious villain so all of them except one went to the purser's office to basically beat him up interrogate him and get him to confess one of them decided to go and follow the count and of course, then my evil <laughs> DM's brain was like, "Ah, right. So it'd be much more dramatic if it's the count, because because yeah. he's like one on one with this with this um, guy who's trying to trail him very subtly. Mm-hmm. And of course, he fails his stealth roll, and the count has these big burly bodyguards with him. And so, literally on the fly, I decided there and then, okay, the count's going to be this sadistic serial killer. He's going to invite the guy back to his room for vodka." They'll ply him with vodka. The bodyguards will take him into the back room, beat him to unconsciousness, tie him up against the bedposts or whatever. And then when he wakes up, the Count's there with his knife, getting ready to have his fun with him. And it, that whole thing literally just emerged in real time. I had planned none of it. It just happened. And, and I was like, okay, so this can work. But I think I kind of... I was giving myself uh, an, almost like an easy out because because it was a side quest, as it were, and it was a very self-contained, and it wouldn't have any impact on the main story. I was happy doing it. Now, whether I'm happy to do it with the main storyline, well, I think that's a, perhaps a, another that's another hill to climb yeah. <laughs> for me. Um, so how did it feel then in the moment? It felt a little bit weird because I, um, I felt a little bit, um, uncertain. It's like, okay, will this, will this work? Yeah. I was thinking, and then because they had no real way of knowing that that was the outcome, how are they going to go and save their friend? And I think that's where it kind of slightly went a bit wonky because they and I didn't really pick up this at the time. But thinking about, it, they totally metagamed it at that point. They were like, okay, we're just going to go and see where the count is because <laughs> obviously we were doing it at the table. I was like, okay, whatever. 
you know, because really the logical outcome would be the count just kind of cuts the guy open. But, you know, that would have been a, a little bit mean. So I, I did give them that opportunity. And they knew the count was a really sketchy character. There'd already been an assassination attempt on his life by some Bolsheviks. He was heading back to Russia to try and reclaim the Russian land from the revolution and all this kind of stuff. And they knew all about that. So they knew he was not an, a nice guy in the end. But it, it felt uncomfortable. But it, I went with it and, it and it actually worked really, really well in the end. Did it generate tension at the table? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that uncertainty made it even more tense. When I put it up, I think it's one of our best ever episodes and a real marker for how we should be playing from now on. But as I said, a bit more challenging once we get back into the main plot where certain things kind of have to happen in some sort of sequence, kind of. I want to turn this conversation around because I want to understand how you turn up with a sort of, um, and I want to say plotted adventure, but I mean an adventure where you kind of know what the outcome is. See, for me... I always feel like I'm robbing the players of choice mm. if I'm expecting a particular outcome. Yeah, and I have felt that at times. And if I did get called out on in a pretty major way in my first campaign, Back to the Hobby, in 2015, mm. one of my players who was actually, like me, a grumpy old grognard, he actually really called me up towards a very dramatic point towards the end of the it was the end of book one kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> and and we never played book two because at that point my daughter was born and then we had to stop so it was a real shame but it was it was actually a bit of a dagger in my heart because we'd all been really loving the campaign up to then and it'd been yeah. relatively open-ended but for me there was this very important thing that had to happen <laughs> okay so uh, i'll summarize it basically what had to happen was one of the players at the very climax of the of book one they had to take this artifact that they knew was very dangerous and the artifact had to take them over had to kind of possess them right and make them do some stuff and I kind of narrated it out. But one of them decided to grab the artifact and try and use it against the enemy, mm. even knowing how dangerous it was. And then at that point I said, you do that, and then you immediately are compelled to do this, this, and this. And then they all thought, okay, what can we do to stop this happening? And they tried to come up with stuff. And I went, no, 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 that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he suddenly bursts into flames and then, he he sends out this massive meteor swarm that kills the enemy and then and then he shoots up into the sky and bursts through the cavern ceiling and he shoots off like a and they were saying no 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 we can okay we'll try and do this and I said no 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 none of that works and rightly so he gave me a really hard time afterwards he said you totally railroaded us there at the end and I didn't like that and I was like oh that that was a huge lesson for me because that was all going to lead on to this other unfolding of these really, oh, I thought were interesting events. He would go off and do all this kind of crazy stuff and then they would have to try and find him and bring him back to himself and fight off this possessed artifact thing. And I thought it would be really cool. But what, of course, I didn't think about was they would feel really resentful if I took away their agency at that point, which Mm. I totally did. And that was a big lesson for me, not to do that. 
subsequently, I've never done anything like that again because I realized that is a pretty crappy way of running a game, <laughs> even though I thought it was really dramatic. And it was dramatic. It was a very dramatic ending. Mm. But it doesn't matter how dramatic it is. If the players feel like they didn't have any role to play in it, then why the hell are they at the table? Yeah, it's a role-playing game, right? <laughs> I get what you're saying. And this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of like it overexerting my will in that kind of in that kind of way, and I guess mm. fundamentally just don't trust you know, don't trust myself. If I was to set up a you know a situation where I feel I'm you know it's really important, I don't trust myself to be able to let go of it if necessary. Mm. And so I never go anywhere near that. I mean, recently I think where I've got to is I'm starting to think a bit more like this is the angry GM again. His suggestion was. You kind of set up a situation at the start of the adventure, and you should also imagine what the possible outcomes of the end of the adventure are, but not in the sense of what you expect the players to do, but what's logical, you know. So, for example, if you're trying to save the uh, the village from a dragon, you know, uh, what kind of endings might there be? And he, his suggestion was, well, you know, they could go kill the dragon, but they could also go and negotiate with the dragon. They could drive the dragon away. Mm. They could evacuate the entire village. And there's four things straight away. And he sort of said, well, in your, have in your mind those options, but be open to others. Yeah. So you're prepped to have a fight with a dragon. You're prepped to negotiate with a dragon. You're prepped to maybe deal with the various ways the villagers might want to, might suggest you know, handling it, whatever, whatever the players do. But ultimately, you're always open to whatever the players actually do as well. And I've kind of, I've become comfortable with that, but I'm not comfortable with anything in between to start and the end. You know, like to come up with this idea of right now create rising tension and let that drop and then the rise in the tension. And that, to me, it just seems really contrived and I'm not comfortable with it. And actually, here's the problem with written modules is they can't possibly write all of those possible outcomes and explain mm. how they would work unless they're sandbox campaigns deliberately mm. without A to B to C. That's why they seem so kind of contrived and railroady in a way because they can only really write maybe at most two and in fact uh, master nilathotep is such a is a brilliant campaign uh, and it's done it it's written better than any that i've ever read even though it's massive and it's like a, huge <laughs> a task just to read the thing but it does definitely in, in almost every situation outlines more than one possible outcome and gives you a bunch of suggestions for how things could play out mm. There's a major character who you might kill at some point, but she's so important in a way to the plot that in every chapter it has this section on what if Nitocris, she's called, she's the resurrected pharaoh queen, what if she's still alive and what would she do in Australia or in or in Kenya or wherever? Yeah. Which I think is great scenario writing because it's giving you all this food for thought about, okay, what happens if it doesn't go the way I think it's going to go? It's much easier to do that when you're homebrewing because you yeah. don't have to write down five paragraphs explaining what happens if you evacuate the village. You can just have that as a note in your head and just do it. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's that, it's that thing of like, I've thought about it a little bit. I thought about it when I started the situation. And I can think about how I'm going to incite that scenario when they, they turn up at the village or whatever. What's the scene? I can make that quite dramatic at the start. and paint a picture that draws the players in i know their characters hopefully a little so i can perhaps even hook in things that might 
if they were role-playing their character in the way I expect, it might be easy for them to grab those things. But much beyond that, I really don't want to drive it. Yeah, it does. And I'll tell you what I do, and maybe this will help, maybe not. Here's a thought. Think of the plot moments as hexes. Mm -hmm. So... It's kind of like a point crawl idea where instead of locations, you have events. Mm -hmm. And those events may or may not happen. And they're totally dependent on whether the party goes to that event, mm. if you see what I mean. They're, they're, in this, they're in this kind of swirling cloud of possibilities until they go there. And then you, you can play out the event. But that must, it must be modified based on what they have done previously mm. or who they've encountered or what knowledge they have. So you have to keep it relatively loose. So I'll give you an example. At the end of the New York chapter of Masks, it's not necessarily the ending, but it usually is. The, the dra dramatic climax happens in this place called Juju House, mm -hmm. which is the, the kind of base of the cultists, of the cult of the bloody tongue. That's where their base of power is. They're the people that, that create the narrative drive at the beginning of the adventure they kill a good friend jackson elias the good friend of the party mm. and you don't have to end it there but if they do end it there then it is very dramatic there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff going on there's there's a hideous thing in a pit and there's a bunch of naked cultists and they're probably sacrificing someone and it's a good place to have the dramatic climax mm. but the surrounding kind of events that lead up to it are very undefined. So there's all these different uh, opposing kind of forces in a way. There's, there's the cult. There is a group of corrupt police officers or, or, or squad of uh, corrupt policemen who are, who are being paid off by the cult, mm. who are, are very keen on keeping anyone, you know, any nosy investigators away from the goings on there and, and are actually blocking the whole investigation of, of the murder. They've framed another guy. Then there's a bunch of good cops. Then there are these guys in Harlem, the Harlem Hellfighters, kind of uh, ex-army guys from World War I who are, who are also to have an interest in it. And there's probably a bunch of others you could just make up. There's a bunch of probably mafia gangs. There's, there's Stephanie Sinclair, who was a notorious Harlem female gang leader. Uh, so all of these things could interplay. So what happens actually when they when they carry out their assault on Juju House or or sneak in or or try and pretend they're cultists or whatever, that is very open. So if you think about it, there's this kind of anchor, which is at some point they will go to Juju House. Mm -hmm. But what actually happens around that is very fluid. And the way it played out at the table, I thought was really good fun. The corrupt cops turned up and tried to arrest them. They then, they were in an alley being frisked and the other guys were, were in the car with the car engine running on the other side of the road and they basically just gunned the car and ran the cops over and then there was this huge firefight and then one of them at that point had actually been taken off down to the basement of Juju House and uh, it's the same guy that was taken into the Count's <laughs> bedroom. So he basically is the guy that gets kidnapped every <laughs> every time. It's, so anyway, it's really... Uh, so, you know, none of that was planned. Literally none of that was planned. But what was planned was once they go into Juju House, all hell's going to break loose. Mm. So that's kind of, I think, how I do it now, where I have this 
maybe this vague goal that I know we're heading towards, but mm. what happened, as you said, what happens on the way is very open. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, going back to a theoretical base, we're back to the Alexandrian, his node-based structure, which is something I'm trying to learn to use. And, and, and the node is a point. It can be a place, a person, a situation, mm. an event, or whatever. And again, by using the three-clue rule when you're doing kind of mystery-type elements, where if you've got a conclusion you want the players to come to, you make sure that you give three clues that would point that way. And obviously those clues are scattered around other points, people, places, events, whatever. And I'll say you go through various events in the story. The story that's emerging kind of comes from them going to whatever place in whatever order they choose and going to see mm. whomever they want. And But actually it's all building to a series of conclusions that lead to a point. And then guess that's what you're similar to thing to what you're describing. Mm. So, yeah. There's a structure there underneath it, but it's kind of just Alexander is always don't prep plots, pet, prep situations. And also he's very big on like pull back from the situation to look at it broadly. Like for example, one of the examples he gives is if you've got a bunch of gangsters protecting somebody in a hospital bed and your guys are going to go in and kill mm. them. Don't think about, oh, is the, the room with the gang boss in and the corridor and all those other things and what's on what floor. Think about the whole hospital. How would the mob, you know, what the resources they've got? They've got like 20 guys mm. in the building. And in your head, you have a rough idea of what hospital looks like and you kind of wing that. And they respond to what yeah. the players do. That's what I'm trying to get to. Think. I think that's where I'm. I'm comfortable. There's. I don't know if that's gelling with what you're saying, or where. Yeah, but, it does. And and no, no, no. It really does because I, I'm really feeling liberated by not having maps, mm-hmm. not having floor plans. I mean, there are a few in the adventure, mm. but the fact that it's kind of saying you don't need to worry about that stuff. Yeah. Like like you said about the structure. In Call of Cthulhu, it isn't, do you want to go left or right? That is not the structure of Call of Cthulhu, like it is in D&D. It's, okay, you find a clue, and you read it, and it tells you about something. And then you can go to that place. And you don't need to say, okay, I stand up, I walk out the door, (laughs) I turn right, I open the front door, I go into, you know, which you would kind of do in a and d setting. Well, yeah, maybe in a D and D dungeon game, but in my point, dungeon, is, yeah, it depends yeah. on the game that you're playing. I mean, I don't just mean the rules here. For me, there's a triangle: rules, the underlying game structure, and the setting, right? And it depends mm. a bit on what you're playing, where you're playing. But yes. you know, if I'm if I'm doing a mega dungeon and the setting is you know this under earth underworld thing, then absolutely the game structure is a dungeon crawl. But if I'm doing uh, a D&D game set in a fantasy world and we're investigating this, as I was describing earlier, like a kind of goblin drug running thing. Yes. Do I need to run yes. it as a dungeon crawl? Absolutely not. And I didn't really have a plan for that building where the imagined what a hovel looks like and described it. When they went to the pub and they had a bit of a bust up there, that's totally out of my head. When they went to the temple, I just made it up on the spot. I, I had a sense of its rough kind of size roughly what it was about a couple of notes but absolutely i'm just describing it on the fly and what they were doing is hunting for clues because that part of the adventure was essentially a mystery mm. and i think it's important to understand the game you're playing and i don't mean the rules i mean 
what type of game am I running here? And there, there comes a point, and I think Justin Alexander makes this point wonderfully on the Alexander again, there comes a point where you realize that there are multiple games you can play within a role-playing session. There is a bit where I can, we can go in Absolutely. the temple. We can go in the temple, Absolutely. and I have a map, and suddenly we're dungeon crawling. But actually, we yes, could have played yes, for three yes. hours investigating that that's where we mm. had to get to. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I was about to say exactly the same thing. I was saying it's about how, how close you're zooming in. Mm. The dungeon crawl is almost like the ultimate zoom in. Actually, the ultimate zoom in is a combat. That's like, that's like the, the highest yeah. level of granularity. Absolutely. Going in for second by second or millisecond by millisecond. Yeah. And then zoom out one level and you kind of have the exploration of the dungeon and then zoom out another level and you've got the kind of maybe the environment or wilderness. Zoom out another level and then maybe you've got this other level of abstraction of mm. six months passes and winter comes. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the wonderful thing about that is once you realize you can move, like you have these tools in your GM's toolbox, you can then grab the ones you need, you know. And and what I'm finding is that you know again in terms of prepping and improvising, what I'm doing is really wanting to be sure I've got all the tools with me. So if I'm going, you know, if they're doing an investigation, I need to know broadly what the clues are for the thing I want them to get. You know, I want them to the conclusion I want them to draw really. So let's say there's a cult in the temple I just made up on my head and this conversation um you know there may be some there's three clues that are pointing to that temple you know and i can place those in a village now i may well decide exactly where they are i may not actually i mean they may be quantum clues and i suddenly realize i'm a bit more comfortable with this than i thought i was um but they're quantum <laughs> clues you know they're there they're maybe they're with the people i might decide i'll turn you i'll turn you chain yeah. i'll turn you to the dark side but what i mean is you know i might have decided that this guy knows this and that woman over there knows this and here there's this written clue in the temple or whatever you know like at the town temple i mean the, the church or whatever you know and it's leading and pointing to this thing over here and i've got a map for that prepped because i know there's a dungeon crawl to be done there um and actually the most the rest of it i can probably wing if you know what i mean um, and I think if I come to the table with that amount of detail ready, I'm comfortable. We're back full circle yeah. in the conversation. That's enough for me. Yes. And I know that I can trust myself after 30 years on and off GMing that I can kind of wing the rest. And I'm, I think, so, hmm, go on. Yeah. I just want to talk just a little bit about a, a game I ran, which was literally, was really my first improvised game. Mm. And it was completely improvised. And that was, that was like, no training wheels standing at, standing at the the um, open door of the airplane ready to just jump out for the first time total exposure <laughs> yeah i was i was running a game called everybody is john yep. i don't know if you've heard about it i've heard about it from you yeah for me and and so it's one page of rules there's only one rule mechanic in there there's almost no rules whatsoever that would terrify me Literally, you do not prep at all. Mm. So the way it works is that every player, there's one GM, I was being the GM, the other players, they're all vying for control over this character, John. They're all the voices in his head. He's like yeah, <laughs> a disturbed individual. And by rolling dice, at times they can take control and then run him <laughs> like a stolen vehicle. So it's like a shared character. A shared character, and and the players are vying for control of this character, mm. and each of the voices has a an objective that right. they're trying to achieve. They write that down at the beginning, and they tell me so I know what it is. And it might be I want 
to get a million dollars or I want to become internationally famous or I don't know, whatever, just, just something weird usually. And it says, you just start. Uh, one of the players, whoever rolls the highest, gets initially control of John. And you start by saying, okay, you wake up in, and then you have to just make up where the person has woken up. Yeah. Gives you a few suggestions. Often it's in a gutter somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, okay, you wake up in, in a gutter, in a back alley somewhere. You don't know where you are. You're wearing, I don't know, you're wearing a jumpsuit and you've got blood stains on you. Mm. What do you want to do? And then everything else that happens there is completely improvised at the table. And it was really good fun. It was insane. Yeah. It was completely insane because it's completely just seemingly just these random things just come out of nowhere, this emergent story. And I really enjoyed it, but I was very nervous going into it. And at the end I said, did we, was that fun? <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was at all, whether it was fun for them or not. And they seemed mm. to like it. It was kind of, I was testing myself out to do the exact opposite of what I would do. Mm. And it worked, but, but, and here was the problem. The game just kind of ran out of steam after about an hour. Mm. That we just couldn't keep it up. Because there was nothing to, okay, wh what do we do? Now? You know, mm. yeah. every every few minutes we're thinking, okay, what do we do now? What do we do? Now? And, and eventually it's just too much, I think. Yeah. And it's too hard. And again, I'm back to that thought of you have to have a goal, don't you? And then whether the players set it or you set it, I think that's a contract at the table. I was ranting the other day in a random episode that's up on my Patreon, if anyone cares, about how there's three levels of agency and the top level is they choose the goal. But I think as a GM, there are times when it's absolutely appropriate. You are going to choose what the goal is. If you're running a one-shot game or whatever, you choose what the goal is and everyone just mm. goes along with it. I think if you're going to have an ongoing campaign, it's nice to be able to get to a point where the players are saying, hey, we want to go and, I don't know, assassinate the king or we want to go and find this thing or we want to do this, that, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, and you can then, as a GM, provide them with that, the route through. So that's what you want to do. Okay, I'm going to provide you with the barriers to that, if you like, and then we can go from there. It sounds like if you don't have that, your experience is, and my experience is the same in this, is that you just end up running out of steam. And mm. my mistake over the years, and I've, this is, you know, realizing sitting here talking to you, the reason why I end up flitting from game to game to game and from setting to setting to setting and campaign to campaign to campaign is because I don't necessarily set anything up at the end. You know, I kind of rely on the players doing it. And the reality is that most of the time they don't, they don't choose that. Yeah, and I've got to learn to to do that. They don't. They don't feel. They don't feel like it's their job. <laughs> they don't feel like yeah. it's their job. Often, I think probably why I'm not a player. It's why I'm a GM. I want to set the goal as a player. You know, I don't want someone saying to me, uh -huh. "Your job is to go and do X." You know, when I get around the table, I just want to go. Okay, this is my character. I want to do this. It's that control freak thing. And in the end, I just wind up the GMs I play with because I never want to play along with their story, you know, or their plot or whatever it is they want yeah. to do. So then you're, you're, you're either number two or number seven in the eight types of fun, uh, the <laughs> fantasy or the expression. Yeah. Because that's very, those are both very much about the players getting their fulfillment from playing out what they imagine their character is doing rather than going along with someone else's story. And I want it to be a challenge because I always come back to that. It needs to be hard. 
And again, I know players who say to me, you're a really mean GM, you don't give enough treasure, monsters are you know, really hard. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah, maybe. And I've got, I've got more generous over the years, I think. But I think ultimately I kind of fundamentally believe that everything should be hard because it's more fun that way. Again, it's something I kind of need to loosen up on, I think. I think with clues, for example, it needs to be the opposite. I think that they should be easy-ish to find. Not necessarily obvious, yeah. but easy-ish. Because yeah. otherwise, that's not fun in a mystery. But, you know, if you're doing a dungeon crawl and there's a load of, you know, it's kind of there after the super treasure, then I think it's probably appropriate that it'd be tough. Yeah. Again, it comes back to this thing of what game are you playing? What structures are in play here? Are you exploring the terrain? Are you exploring a location? Are you solving a mystery? Is it a combat game? Like you said, that's a game structure in itself. It's the fighting game. And and for me, that gets boring quickly. I might as well go play a war game. Mm. But that is a game. And there's a game. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If that's what you want to do, you want to play fight after fight after fight. I've got at least one guy I know who that's what he comes to the game table for. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just not what I'm in it for. Yeah. I think as a GM, know what you're offering your players. And I ultimately know what they want, I suppose. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. In the end, that's it. Someone said it just very recently. It's The system doesn't matter. The setting doesn't matter. The plot doesn't matter. What matters is the players sitting around your table, actually. Mm. That's what... That's what tell. That's what actually decides whether you're having a good time or not. Yeah. <laughs> now, those, I, I think it's a little bit kind of too black and white because there are some game systems. I mean, let, let's take Paranoia for instance. That is notorious for for giving people a bad time <laughs> because it's telling it's kind of telling you to to be nasty to each other. But I've played it and we had a great laugh. So I, I think it, we all went in with the right spirit. It was like, yeah, we're all going to be absolute assholes to each other, and that's going to be the fun. Sorry, I remember when I played that in the 80s, that was exactly it. You kind of knew we were going to be arseholes to each other for the evening. And you played it a couple of times, then we put it away, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't want that in your D&D campaign. That would not make a good D&D setting, at least for most people. I just yeah. want to pick on one last thing. In, you know, everyone is John. You said at the end you weren't sure if people had a good time. And I just want to say that that's how I do feel. I guess that's the cost of this kind of emergent trusting in emergent play and trusting in the pacing to mm. come naturally and not force it is ultimately I'm never sure if they had a good time and they all sit there around the table every time and go, yeah that was fun and smile and especially if I'm playing online where I can't see their body language I never believe them yeah and my natural self-doubt and poster syndrome just convinces me that they're not having a good time yeah and I guess what I'm kind of saying is I would suggest that players, if you're having a good time, that you really layer that on thick to your GM because I wonder yeah, if yeah. I'm not alone in that. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think I need to know they had a good time and they need to show me they had a good time. You're absolutely not alone in that. And what happens is when you ask for feedback, you don't get it. No. It's very hard to really get it. When we're asking for feedback, we don't want people to say, oh, I loved it and it was great. And often they'll say something along those lines yeah it was great it was fun what we're actually asking for is tell us what you like specifically yes. and let's play into that a bit more and yeah, they yeah. don't do that they tend not to do that i find um their players tend to be very cagey about giving you feedback and we want it 
I've recently taken on, and I think again it's Angry GM, I've taken on a thing that works for me, which is at the end of the session I ask each player, what was the best thing this session? Mm. Sometimes it's something their character did. Often it's something another character did, you know, another player did, which is nice because that builds up yeah. this sense of, oh, I really appreciate this when this happened, you know. It made me laugh when you did that or whatever. Um, sometimes it's like getting that and killing that monster and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But what it tells me is what to do more of. Yes. Yeah, that, that's a really good idea. I think I'll do that. Um, as long as you don't get the reply, oh, uh, I can't remember anything that happened. Yeah, well, <laughs> the session. That, that tells you <laughs> something, doesn't it? <laughs> that does tell you something, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm sure there were a few players that I've played with in the time who literally couldn't tell you anything that had just happened in the session. And let's be honest, there's two things there. It might be that it wasn't a great session. And sometimes we have to admit to ourselves, you know, that was a bit crap. You know, that wasn't a good one. Yeah. And I think you have to get uh, ultimately gaming that has that risk every time. But the other thing is sometimes there are players at the table who don't necessarily pay much. They're just there socially. And that's cool too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think when you know that about a player, when you figure that out about a player, you stop worrying about what they enjoyed. Because you kind of know that what they're really there for is to be in your house with you or whatever. Yeah. For two years, I had one of the players in my D&D campaign. He played the simplest character. He played a rogue assassin. Mm. All he does is sneak attack and big (laughs) damage dice. That's literally all he ever did. He could never remember what his sneak attack was or how to kind of trigger it. He He always forgot to hide. He never remembered how many dice damage it did. He never remembered. I kept wondering, why does he keep coming back? He was there because he just liked hanging out with us. That's okay. It's the fellowship engagement, right? That's it. Yes. Yeah. Andy, it's been amazing. It's also been long, and we better wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any last words? Yeah. I feel like we never actually touched on that really interesting part of the conversation, which was how I got back into gaming and also talk, understanding your perspective on that, which, which of course, is infuses every episode of your podcast uh, mm. so maybe we should uh, do this again sometime yeah for that a part two no problem yeah okay so we'll schedule that then we will have a part two let's find out more about andy although i would say people can find out a bit about you by listening to exhibition <laughs> for the grizzly pigs right that that's true but i you know you must have about a hundred times more listeners than me so you know well, i don't know about that <laughs> but, uh, great andy goodman it's been brilliant Thank you so, so much for your time. Yeah. I'm going to let you go. All right. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Speak to you soon. Game on. Cheers. Rescue! And there you have it. Interview with Andy Goodman, Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks. Massive, massive thank you to Andy for coming online and having a chat with me. Despite there being some fairly weird shenanigans going on with the recording there. Um, But hey, Frank Turfel has managed to rescue the audio and yeah, I feel like it's at least listenable to, wouldn't you say? Hopefully there was something there for you guys that you'd find interesting or useful or if anything else, just, you know, mildly amusing. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Frank. Without you, there would not be a show this weekend. Thank you also to the wonderful Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through their generous support at patreon.com forward slash RPG Rescue. Guys, thank you so much for continuing to back this show and, you know, keep encouraging me on and keep me going. Because honestly, 
recently have been very tempted to once again throw in the towel and you guys keep me going and growing as good old spike pitt would say and thank you too to our fantastic callers today once again thank you to jason of the nerds rpg variety cast goblins henchman from goblins henchman podcast and roy lorenko from chaos's limb guys brilliant to hear from you i hope you'll keep calling in finally Thank you to you, the listener, taking a little bit of time out of your day and coming and listening to us witcher on about role-playing games. Hopefully, I've done the thing that I set out to do, encouraging people to come back to the table, to play more games of imagination, and to play them in a way that suits you best. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again on the flip side. Game on!